a welcome to Pop Screen, a new podcast from the Heatfield Podcast Network, this time dealing with the good, the bad and the inexplicable of movies, either about, featuring or starring pop stars. No, the podcast has a broader range of music and cinematic genres, from documentaries to sci-fi, from hip-hop to country, we cover it all. I'm Graham Williamson, I'm a film critic for The Geek Show and for Horrified Magazine, and this week I've been joined by... I'm Joe Miller. Um, I am also from The Geek Show and I podcast for The Dreaming Machine, which is an animation podcast. Excellent. For now, we are going back to the obvious starting point for this podcast. It wasn't the first rock and roll movie. It wasn't even the first British rock and roll movie. It is the British rock and roll movie. It's 1964. Richard Lester's behind the camera. The Beatles are in front of it. The first chord is an F 11th with a G bass note, I think. One of the most famous opening chords in musical history. Indeed, it's a hard day's night. So first off, I don't like saying I'm a Beatles fan because I always think people would be like justified in responding to that by saying, you're a Beatles fan? I've never met such an exotic specimen before. Tell me more about this obscure band you like. Yeah. Yeah. But I am a Beatles fan, and so are you, of course, Joe. I am. I'm definitely a Beatles fan. Um, I was on a Beatles uh, tour taxi in Liverpool mm. with my family, and the tour guide started referring to me um, for little details and to double-check his facts. Um <laughs> Yeah, I really am a Beatles fan. Um, and it was great doing this podcast because it's a great chance to watch this film again. I think this film, along with Help and Magical Mystery Tour, bizarrely, were like together. Like, I'd watched them so many times as kids and they really did get me into the Beatles. And so that kind of kicked off my lifelong love of the Beatles. So I'm not only am I a fan, and I, I totally agree with you about the redundancy, mm. but I'm, I'm like a very geeky very obsessed fan. Um, so, yeah, I think the Beatles are fantastic, of course. Like, who wouldn't think they're fantastic? I don't want to get sidetracked too much onto the other films because, you know, hopefully we will cover them all at some point in the future. But when you said you liked this help and magical mystery tour as a child, you are aware that there is a Beatles film that is made for children that you could have watched instead of magical mystery tour, right? That's the only film um, I didn't really watch as a kid, bizarrely. Yeah. Um, a long time to catch up to Yellow Submarine. Um, yeah, I mean, but, you know, Hard Day's Night was... Um, I mean, what was interesting about re-watching it was there were bits that had stuck in my head from watching it as a kid, which yeah. is showed epic and memorable you know, elements of the movie are. So it'll be great to talk about it today. You watched it, didn't you, with your son? Um, so I watched most of it myself, but then my son came back for the last uh, 20 minutes of the film. Um, yeah. fact, he is already a Beatles fan. Like, uh, He's got Sgt. Peppers as an album. Um, like we put a lot of the Beatles on in the car. He loves certain tracks by them. Mm. Um, but he came in during the concert scene at the end of the movie where you have this hysteria. You have... Um, this incredible energy, the incredible camera angles, like zooming in on these hysteric fans, uh, mm. you, you know, the Beatles performing like in the heyday. 
uh, yeah. live performances at least. And it, it, yeah, but both both my five year old and my and my three year old as well, just totally silenced, totally absorbed in the movie. And then my five year old like uh, that night said he wanted to become a rock and roll star. Excellent. <laughs> so, like um, yeah, it definitely. The only question he had was why are the people screaming so much? Why are they so upset? And I had to explain that's because they're <laughs> them at the time. But yeah, it, yeah, it shows the power of the movie as well that it got across that energy and that excitement, like in the concert scene, which is uh, fantastic at the end. And uh, as soon as we finished the movie, he asked me to put it on again. And yeah, this is bedtime, so sadly we couldn't. But. Uh, but yeah, it's great to see his reaction to it. It reminds like myself of me as a child. Because the movie has this incredible innocence to it, doesn't it? It's a very pure, very if I say use certificate, it is a use certificate. It it kind of sounds like I'm damning it and saying that it leaves out all the dark bits, but I don't think that's the point. I think it is this beautiful kind of dream of how crazy and how wonderful being a rock star could be, and it works perfectly on that level, I think. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It kind of, um, for me, it kind of has its cake and it eats it, really. So they kind of have this, uh, I mean, they just come across as incredibly cool. Mm. Right, um, and very true to themselves, and they just do and say whatever they want. But it also comes across very positively and playfully, and not it. Just, they don't come across as cynical or horrible at any point. It's got that lovely, positive feeling to it, that exciting feeling to it, while still hinting at the ridiculousness of fame and the ridiculousness of what they're going through. And that, especially John, you can kind of see that quite harsh humor come through sometimes. Yeah, definitely. Is I think it does that balance really well of them not being coming across as fake and bland, mm. horrible at the other end of things, but still it's still a joyous, like very is you know it's a great watch, isn't it? Yeah, completely. And it starts as the song starts with that extraordinary opening chord and this incredibly high energy opening credits of them running away from crowds of fans. And it immediately spells out what you're going to get. It's the pop movie as the kind of Keystone Cops spectacular. This because Richard Lester's previous experience, he'd done a couple of films before this, but the thing that really put him on the Beatles radar was he made a short film called The Running, Jumping and Standing Still film, starring the cast of the Goon Show. And all of the Beatles were huge Goon Show fans, and they saw that as having a similar kind of energy and sense of anarchy to the early rock and roll music that they loved so much. So his task, essentially, was to make the Beatles into the Goons. Yeah, definitely. Um, I read that as well, that they had the list of directors, and, and it was that film in particular that, that made them favour Leicester over the other choices. Mm. I think even where he directly copied um, elements of that film for like the Can't Buy Me Love um, musical number. I, I yeah. Yeah, energy is a word, definitely. Energy and maybe irreverence as well, like um, that playfulness. Mm. Kind of silliness, really. There's a lot of, um, so you have that very exciting opening scene full of uh, action, momentum. You immediately drop into the Beatles world, um, like great fast cutting, great, uh, great direction. Mm. And then the first dialogue scene, 
it just it doesn't it's just very playful and silly really mm. i think the stuff in the train is lovely i think and it there is a sort of hint of how menacing the older generation found even this very kind of squeaky clean rock and roll music when they have that sort of priggish newspaper reading fellow passenger who they enjoy tearing strips off i mean this idea that um like one of the older gentlemen on the train says um oh we fought the war for you um and john i think it's john isn't it who just immediately um the Beatles just immediately undermine that statement straight away. It's like the, having the confidence to to do that, really, and show that we're the younger generation, we're going to do things our way. It's quite weird because nowadays in Britain, that 60s generation seemed to think that they did win the war. There's been this weird generational slippage where I, I don't quite understand how that's happened, but basically everyone over about 60 who lives in Britain thinks that they stormed the beaches at Normandy. I mean, there's a one time period when that statement might actually be true, to be fair. <laughs> like those, yeah. When the film was made, I guess. Oh, could... yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. There's a bit just after that, which I think is interesting. When Which song is it they play in the train carriage again? Should have known better. That's it. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting because it's the only musical number that is pure fantasy. It's like when you look at some of the later ones, like If I Fell, you can say, well, if they just walked on set, they wouldn't be able to play that well. They need to test the equipment. There's a bit of fantasy there. But I Should Have Known Better is a pure musical number. It's no more realistic than anything in The Sound of Music. They're playing cards in a train carriage and suddenly there's this harsh cut and they've all got musical instruments. And it never happens again in the film. It's fantastic, isn't it? Mm. And to re- you're right, it's, it's a really harsh cut. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but it suits, it suits the tone of the movie, I think. Um, the fact that you don't have to have too much logic and too much. Yeah, logic. I think if it if it didn't have that very early on, you would maybe be looking at the later segments and thinking, oh, well, that's not really how a television studio works or stuff like that. It does announce very early in the film that A Hard Day's Night is not a documentary. Uh, which is weird because one of the problems it famously had during production was this was not the first Beatles film to go into production. That the Maisels brothers, a very famous pair of cinema verite directors from America, had a film called What's Happening, which was a fly on the wall documentary about the Beatles on tour. And a Hard Day's Night was conceived as this kind of parodic comic take on that where they inflated the success they had at the moment to ridiculous levels. And when What's Happening was finished, Brian Epstein actually bought the rights to it so you could you know, sit on it and stop it being released because the documentary looked indistinguishable from the parody. You know, their reality was now that ridiculous. I, I, it's interesting. Like I, I read that um, Alan Owen, the the screenplay writer, um, mm. he spent time with the Beatles. He was able to distill each of their personalities into like a one line description, basically, and that comes across in the movie. Yeah, 
you can kind of get that blurring of lines between this parody and the the reality really i mean I, what you said that i didn't know i wasn't aware of that that doesn't surprise me about epstein whatsoever <laughs> yes <laughs> well there's because there's like there's a list of other Beatles projects that were nixed by Epstein, weren't there, particularly in the film sector. There was the script that Joe Orton wrote for them up against it, which have you ever, I know they did a radio play version of that. I've never heard it though. I haven't either, no. Yeah, I'd quite like to see because I do like Joe Orton's writing, but basically Orton, like Epstein, was gay, and as soon as Epstein read the script, he spotted all these kind of coded gay innuendos that Orton had put in it and just stamped on it. Uh, my favourite Beatles near miss in terms of screen appearance was the time that they were going to cameo on William Hartnell, the Doctor Who. Wow, I wasn't aware of that. There is... Uh, Doctor Who story called The Chase, which does in its finished form actually have a Beatles appearance, just using footage from an old Top of the Pops. But the original plan was that the Doctor and his companions would go to like Liverpool in the early 21st century and find all the Beatles in an old people's home. Well, if only, I guess. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it, it would be quite bittersweet now. Um, apparently, the band were dead keen to do it, but Epstein thought it would be bad for their image. Yeah, I can kind of see that. They were very controlled in that mm. period. They, um, yeah, but the like was, the savvy marketing side of Epstein. Like, I, I totally get that. But um, yeah, right though. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned Alan Owen there. He's a really interesting guy. I think I think it might have been McCartney who'd seen this play No Trains to Lime Street and thought this guy absolutely gets working class Liverpool dialects. Yeah, I read that too. That um that that's part of the reason he was chosen, wasn't it? Um yeah. and that comes across. Although I, I read as well that um this film I'm not sure if popularized the word as originated with the word, I think it was grotty, the word yes. grotty, um, which wasn't, and the I think the Beatles, from what I've read, the Beatles complained that wasn't actually the Republican, funnily enough, but <laughs> I could tell, yeah, I'm obviously, I'm not from Liverpool myself. It seemed, it feels like quite true. As I said before, it doesn't sound really fake, like when they're talking really. Mm-hmm. I, read the, I read the Hunter Davies, like, um, biography of them and yeah. only official commissioned Beatles like biography at, at the time when they were around and um at the time when there was still a group sorry and there was a lot more swearing and like dirty humor mm. as you'd imagine with guys that, yeah but otherwise it you know they, it, they come across quite real and like, like Liverpudlian guys aren't they just one one moment before I pick up on that the word grotty uh this film was novelized by John Burke and the John Burke novelization has the extraordinary distinction of being the first book in the English language to use the word grotty. That is a that's a great achievement. <laughs> that's great. history right there. And what a great contribution to culture. That's Absolutely, right. yeah. In many ways, that's the Beatles' legacy, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's just talking about that kind of uh, Liverpudlian thing, one of the things that is really striking going back to A Hard Day's Night 
from the perspective of now, where it's nearly 60 years since their first single, and it feels like the Beatles belong to the world. It's remarkable going back to a hard day's night and seeing how much emphasis there was on the idea that these are working class Scouse kids from an Irish background. Mm. It really helps contextualise the Beatles in a way that they haven't needed since, you know, since about the time when they recorded All You Need Is Love. Yeah, I have quite a lot of feelings about that. I think that's, I think that's a really good, good point, Graham. It's like, um, I mean, I was listening to Radio 1 earlier today and like like there's several songs in a row that had strong regional British accents I just thought mm. that really comes down to the Beatles in a way that yeah read and heard they were the first group to the first really big mainstream group to do that right routinely you know yeah and when you listen to like 50s British rock and roll a lot of it is trying to sound American not out of pretense but because rock and roll's American. If you sing it, you want to sound like Bo Diddley or someone. So yeah, they broke that stranglehold up. I mean, I think famously as well, um, with A Hard Day's Night, the United Artists wanted to redub it. For yes. It's <laughs> when it came out later in America, um, which got very short uh, shift from a... Uh, <laughs> aren't you, I think. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think that's true. So I think... Um, and even though they popularize like singing in your normal accent and things, I think the film really, the film kind of entrenched that really. And like mm. probably you'd imagine that would ha- have had an impact on the popular culture at the time as well. Like just showing the guys in their, their true form really. Yeah. Yeah. And also in terms of the humor of the film, there's a lot of jokes about northerners going down to London. Yeah, there's a joke about Ringo being unleashed on the south, which I think is great. Um, But also you have this character of Paul's granddad, played by Wilfred Bramble, who is really a, a sort of vector for that culture, isn't he? He's an absolute representative of that generation of Anglo-Irish Liverpoolians in a yeah. way that even at this point his his grandson and the friends he has are kind of cosmopolitan but he is really culturally specific in a way that it is still quite strange to imagine like people from other countries watching this. Oh definitely I mean he's quite um he I think he calls Ringo a sissy and gives him a whole sphere the whole reason <laughs> Ringo goes off is because of this ridiculous, yeah, great speech you get from from the character, and um, and yes, he's got those those uh, attitudes about him really, but um, at the same time, he's um, he's very mischievous, obviously. Like he's the one actually causing all the anarchy during the movie. Mm. Like, yeah, and so they have a lot of fun with that character, and, and you're right, like it, it probably it it represents a very specific like. Uh, Cultural type, yeah. And you, you don't really see that like shown anymore, really. I mean, you mentioned the Ringo bit, the bit where he complains that Ringo spends all his time reading books rather than experiencing life is just in for my generation such a like northern great granddad thing. It's amazing. That <laughs> <laughs> no, is great. Um, it is great. I mean, the, the only um. Yeah, and from the well, I don't, I don't know if, if plot's too strong a word, but he, he is like mm. the main driving force for the plot. He gives it uh, the film a focal point to keep it actually moving forward, really. I think, 
Yeah. And I think they did a good job making it as plot light as it is. Yeah. It is about as plotty as you can get away with in a film whose main appeal is just here for two days in the life of the Beatles, you know. Uh, you know, what else do you need? I mean, there's yeah. so much that's going on. It's fantastic. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think the hijinks he gets into are, are genuinely amusing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Even it starts off very strange, like when the reaction to him being Paul's granddad made me think he's just this old guy who's um, this old gentleman, sorry, who's just having a going along for the ride and just doing whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it took me a while to realize no, that is actually meant to be his grandfather. Um, yes. and you know, when he steals the tuxedo and goes to that uh, swanky <laughs> gambling dude, fantastic. <laughs> swanky gambling dude where the woman who fawns over him thinking he must be some high roller is Margaret Nolan who was also the gold painted woman in the opening credits to Goldfinger yeah <laughs> yeah so it's not like that mm. yeah it, it's got quite a few cameos in it aren't there there's quite a few um I mean the granddad himself is from um Steptoe Son yeah um, which the only thing I didn't get about the movie was that constant reference to him being a clean guy. But mm. at the time, if you understood that Septo show, that would have made a lot more sense. That he was constantly referred to as a dirty old man in that. Yeah, yeah. Although weirdly, I think I've had they had that joke in the script before they cast Wilfred Bramble. It's just that as soon as they cast Wilfred Bramble, they were like, Oh, yeah, that's got double meaning now. Let's hammer that a bit. <laughs> yeah, it works really well. Yeah, mm. it definitely suits the tone of the movie. But, um, but yeah, like, he's a lot of... It, what is a credit to the film is that you're not irritated that he's on the screen and the Beatles aren't. Yeah, yeah. Maybe would get with other pop star, rock star movies, like when there's other stuff's getting in the way. And that it, it, it's not an issue really in this film, I'd say. Yeah, because it low-key has a great cast. It is probably the best cast of any movie that no one ever thinks about having a great cast. But I love Victor Spinetti, who plays the TV director, who adds such great humour to all the scenes. There's a cameo from Derek Nimmo, who would go on to be a massive name in British sitcoms in the 70s and 80s as the magician with 10 or possibly nine doves. <laughs> At that moment when he crosses out the 10 on his board is, is <laughs> genius. <laughs> yeah, so people really cared about this movie and it was obviously greenlit as a cash-in and United Artists were never sort of attempting to hide that fact. They were actually expanding their records division at the time and they found out that there was a weird loophole in the Beatles contract at the time which didn't give them full rights to film soundtracks so they thought well this is golden. We make a movie with the biggest band in the world, we have exclusive rights to their soundtrack album, this will be incredible but somewhere along the line with people like Owen and Lester behind the camera it, it just becomes so much more it does become and i hate to say this because it's it's generally one of the markers of truly terrible criticism i think joe it's a portrait of a generation <laughs> wow yeah yeah no but yes that's true it is true yeah. isn't it? um 
Yeah, I mean, United's artists, from what I've read, um, well, exactly what you just said. Um, so they wanted to beat Capitol Records to releasing it in America as well, the soundtrack album. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you'd have to substantiate this, but like, the, the there's a theory that the reason they rushed it through the, the filming of it and um, the release of it and... It, it arguably had a relatively low budget I guess you could you can make that argument um was because it the film was almost just generating the soundtrack album okay yeah, yeah. But as you say it's, it's a real testament to the film um yeah it, and it really does um the, the swinging 60s uh, um Beatlemania um the, the more liberal ca- um counterculture coming in I guess you can mm. make, make that argument and our film's a great representation both in what they show and arguably the way the movie's filmed um, hmm. um which i guess you referred to earlier as well yeah we should delve into that because lester said that he wasn't interested in any rock movies that had been made up to that point partly musically that he was more of a jazz fan but also, he just didn't find them cinematically interesting. And he said that the actual things he was looking at were mostly the early Francois Truffaut films, particularly Shoot the Pianist, which has a very kind of hard days, nightish sense of breaking the fourth wall and going off on semi-related skits and other things. And I suppose it's one of the things that Britain always does that we see these incredible intellectual art movements happening on the continent and we go, yeah, that's got some good jokes in it. We'll take that. And this is kind of Britain doing that with French New Wave. You know, we looked at the early Truffaut and Godard films and I'm not sure how anyone looked at like the early Jacques Rivette stuff and thought, this is a laugh riot, but apparently Richard Lester did and we've got a hard day's night to thank for it. Yeah, I mean, like, thanks to yourself, Graham, um, because, you know, we, we watched a lot of movies together. I, I mm. now understand New Wave a lot better now, I think. Um, mm. You definitely see, like, echoes of that in, in Hard Day's Night. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because you think if the Beatles had been around 10 years earlier, someone would have made a Beatles cash-in movie, obviously, because that's that's established practice by now. But it would have been made in a more conventional style. It wouldn't have had this really anarchic, energetic visual style because that didn't exist. There's a quote by Louis Mal that I just want to bring up. Uh, Louis Mal was also one of that generation of French directors and his films, Easy on the Metro, is like his entry into that kind of 60s counterculture comedy style. Um, and he said, I remember when I saw Richard Lester's first films, I assumed that he'd watched Zazie on the Metro Now I'm not so sure. It's just a form that had become fashionable and worked very well for young people. It was a very rebellious kind of filmmaking, anticipating the image of the early Beatles. I think there's a sense where this is almost like a historic inevitability, that as soon as you get rock and roll, someone is going to think, well, you can't film that like it's, you know, a Douglas Sirk movie. You've got to rough it up. You've got to do something different with it. Uh, yeah, like, uh, like that. My response to that intellectual point is yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, yeah, um, well, they didn't have to actually. They could have been 
more cynical in the way I, I, I know we talked about the rush production and the 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 overall aim of it but they could have mm. said no you don't get the choice of director no this is just yeah. going to be a quick cash in so yeah. there is some kind of creative control and like it's anarchic but um but it's anar- anarchic in a controlled like not magical mysteries to a kind of way there's some kind of <laughs> to it um yeah it would have, I guess, it, you could argue. Maybe going back to that marketing point, you could argue it would have, it might have damaged the Beatles' image if it was too safe, I guess, um, and they didn't rough it up, as you say. Mm. Um, and and the, the main audience of the Beatles were like young people, the youth. Yeah. And the the Beatles fandom is depicted in this really interesting way in this movie, where it's like the biggest secret society you've ever seen. Uh, anywhere the Beatles are, there is just this crowd of fans, and there's no explanation of how they got there, how they found out where the Beatles were going. No, they're just there, and nobody over twenty has the same power. Yeah, um, and you can imagine that'd be not scary to the older generation, but well, mm-hmm. maybe you could do. I mean, they do show they, they really contrast that with the older like establishment and the other characters, like the you know the policeman, like later mm. on that kind of thing or this swanky party I mean I think uh, yeah so it is this I think that's a great way of describing it that like massive secret society <laughs> mm. just this kind of level of fandom was like a new level beyond like anything that had ever happened before at least in music or well, in culture more widely yeah yeah and it was happening on set too. And I think part of the beauty of A Hard Day's Night is that Lester had a style and a sensibility that thrived off that chaos because by the end of the production, like the people who were meant to be keeping notes of extras and their contracts had absolutely no idea which kids on set were extras and which kids had just gate crashed it because they'd heard the Beatles were filming. But in A Hard Day's Night, it doesn't matter. That would derail a lot of other films, but here it's just part of the fun. That, that was just, well, that was part of their lives at this stage, wasn't it? I mean, mm. you know, she came in through the bathroom window. That was yes. Breaking yeah. into... I mean, I mean that was way later after Beatlemania, but or the height of Beatlemania. But it's that was just their lives now. I mean, yeah, and we're so young. That's probably like what they were used to and what they understood about their lives. So you just had to evolve with it, I guess. Uh, the film's probably the film's probably quite accurate, I think, in that representation. Yeah, absolutely, and I think part of the promise of pop music from the moment it starts is that it's young people talking to young people. And you can certainly see that in the movie. I mean, don't, don't they all look absolutely heartbreakingly young? <laughs> heartbreakingly young and heartbreakingly cool. I yeah. I, it, it, even though, you know, it's obviously in much a really old movie. Like, it's, um, like even by the Beatles, it's not the psychedelic colour thing. It's like mm. them with formal like presentation but it's just so effortless at least for me they were effortless effortlessly can't say the word they were very cool <laughs> ironically <laughs> that took a bit of effort <laughs> no i completely agree it's such an iconic image the mop tops the collarless jackets it's you know even if it's not your favorite era of the beatles 
there will always be a part of every Beatles fan who looks at that and thinks, oh, yeah, that's the Beatles. That's what they look like. Yeah. I should uh, probably ask at this point, what sort of chapter of Beatles fandom are you? What's your favourite era? Who's your favourite Beatle? Um, my favourite era is the later era, I think, even from when I was a kid. Um, I mean, going back to Magical Mystery Tour, um, it's funny, like, I had a memory of a kid of like being really, really into that movie and I get mm. up in the morning to watch it. When I was older and re and I rewatched it when I was at uni, I realized even as a kid, a kid I understood the problems of that movie. So I was like, yeah. song segments like I'm the Walrus and uh, <laughs> Mother Should Know and things like that. So I think, um, I think one of the first albums I heard was a Blue Album, like we had on vinyl, like the best song for the later years. And um, I had a couple of cassette tapes too. So I just, um, I loved all of the Beatles, but I just think the, the latest stuff. I just remember hearing things like Hey Jude and thinking, oh, wow, the song can be that long. Mm. Um, or like I'm the Walrus thinking, oh, wow, the lyrics can be that crazy. The production can be that you know, experimental, that kind of thing. So I think um, the later era was probably my favourite era. But having said that, I loved all the Beatles anyway. Like, I loved the earlier stuff too. Um, I think now that I'm in adulthood, <laughs> and the White Album's probably my favourite Beatles album um, but I, I don't like it though when people give sh- um, don't give due credit to the early stuff as well mm. um, I mean I heard that before watching the movie I heard Hard Day's Night uh, soundtrack album and I mean my god it really does stand up I mean uh, it, yeah it absolutely bangs doesn't it there's something about 12, 11 songs on it, most of them are under two and a half minutes and they're hooky as all hell. Yeah. Um, I mean, I Should Have Known Better is a great example. It's um, I, it's just, uh, for me, it's just thrilling. Like, um, as soon as the harmonica kicks in and uh, the, the, the melody of it and um, just the energy with which it's delivered, it's just, um, they, they just know what they're doing and it's so exciting to listen to even now. I think... Um, even if it doesn't have all the experimentation and uh, advance, you know, and arguably songwriting advances, you know, less obsessed with just uh, a girl or something and like looking at all kinds of different areas. Mm. There's still an incredible energy and excitement to that early period Beatles, I think. Um, yeah. Like, and, and just very clever, very well-structured songwriting as well, I think, as well. Yeah, because I I was always kind of a mid-period Beatles guy. I, the first album that I latched onto as a kid was Sgt. Pepper. And I liked, uh, generally, I'd say uh, still my favourite period is the stuff from Revolver through to the White Album. I think that's the golden era. But I think I got into the early stuff more after I read Ian MacDonald's Revolution in the Head. Largely because I'd sort of skipped forward to all the songs I loved and found him just slacking off every single thing on the White Album. Thought, oh, God, what does this arsehole even like? So I started reading the early stuff and he does, as you say, break down how brilliantly written and structured a lot of those. Deceptively simple, I would say, is the, the watchword for it. You know, they're verse, chorus, rock and roll songs, two and a half minutes long. 
they sound incredibly basic, but once you actually dig into them, there's a lot going on there. Uh, yeah, I think that's really true. Um, I think um, I remember my dad saying to me, um, just listen to when I was a kid, just listen to Paul McCartney's bass work. And mm -hmm. his bass has like twice the number of notes of like things that were happening before. Yeah. And, just, and he's a really underrated bass player, bizarrely, <laughs> given, given this. Well, yeah, it's sort of true, isn't it? Because everyone thinks of Paul McCartney and they think of him as a songwriter, him as a singer, and the actual musicmanship kind of gets lost in the shuffle, really. Yeah, but it, it, and it's very innovative as well, like to do that kind of uh, that kind of bass playing and um, and just that energy as well. So they managed to become, you know, better, more structured group. We keep the energy of the, the very early Cavern Club days, and I think. Um, you, I mean, I remember like when the, when the Beatles remastered CDs came out, I, I got uh, a past masters collection and I put on "She Loves You," you know, "She Loves You," yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and I was like, I, I know that song, and I know that song inside out. But when the drums kicked in at the start, it really, it well, it didn't make me crash my car. I'm a safe child. <laughs> yeah, it was like, well, oh my god, wow, that is loud. That is energetic. That is yeah. And they're just very quietly innovative. Um, but yeah, so it, it's good not to like underrate that stuff. I mean, having said that, the early stage Beatles, I've never really gotten into any of the covers they did, really. Um, mm. And it's that's an in, important point, isn't it, for Hard Day's Night? Because at Hard Day's Night, the album was the first record they did, which was all Beatles originals, which at the time, no one... You know, that was something Bob Dylan was doing, but certainly no one in Britain was doing. The Stones weren't doing that. So this was a massive step forward for them as songwriters. It definitely. And it was important to the film. It would have undermined the film. It wouldn't have been as good a film if it did mm. have a cover. Um, I think uh, so it, it was a massive... It was, once again, it was quietly a massive step forward, really. As you say, it was, every song was a Lennon-McCartney song, I think. Um, yeah. Um, uh, and it, you know, really, so musically, it really stands the test of time. I think that is like a snatch of uh, John Harris, uh, George Harrison song in, yeah, Don't Bother Me, a very small part of Don't Bother Me plays in the club scene, but that's it. And somewhat embarrassingly, even in the end credits, that is listed as a Lennon and McCartney song because they just assumed Lennon and McCartney were the group's songwriters. So, yeah, poor George. Um, yeah, poor George. <laughs> um, it wasn't from the Hard Day's Night album, though. That's what I was thinking. But, yeah, you're yeah. right. The song in the film. Um, I mean, even when they're playing it, you get the sense they don't really value George enough, I think. I think... <laughs> Even don't they even have like an instrumental version of uh, boys like during the film as well? This boy, yeah, it's the theme when Ringo goes on his walkabout. Yeah, so um, you know it's a, uh, but once again, it's Lenny McCartney, isn't it? Um, yeah, but yeah, they do give George Harrison a little moment, as you say, <laughs> but that's all he gets. <laughs> It's a shame because uh, George Harrison is my favourite Beatle. I absolutely adore George Harrison. Uh, but also he gets one of the funniest scenes in the film, which is the one with the fashion consultant, which is such a 
brutal attack on that whole sort of pop music marketing industry. And I love the punchline of it with the brand consultant saying, uh, it's okay, we're not really predicted a change in fashion for another three weeks yet. And my God, it, it really stand, stands true today, wouldn't you say? Like Completely. <laughs> yeah. Record companies and, and bands are sweatily chasing after like whatever the latest trends are. It's... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, actually, I mean, a credit to the film, like going back to the film, um, like all four Beatles get their standout moments, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Classic scene with George, and yeah, he comes across as very likable like in the movie. Uh, as mm. you I think the, the most famous one and the one that uh, is indulged the most, it sort of... I, I won't say it goes on because that sounds like a criticism, but it's clear that everyone's having fun doing it. Is the stuff with Ringo going on walkabouts on that lovely kind of really shabby Edgelands Thames embankment? I suppose it circles back to my point about the film being a very innocent film that when he has a day off and decides to go wild as a young rock star in London, he like. He throws a brick in a pond and he sort of has a chat to a school kid and that's about it. Uh, not even that, like when he throws a brick in the pond, he immediately gets told off for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, um, and even when he's in the pub, like just annoying people, he's like, he doesn't even lead to a big fight or anything. He's just slightly irritating people and they politely ask him to leave. Um, so you're right, it's definitely got that innocent quality to it. Uh, mm. but you do get bits of like, as I said, like you do get bits of like snarky, like cynicism, like humor, especially from John, yeah, but done, like in a very like controlled and and way that doesn't undermine that like innocent, positive feeling. I think the thing that makes the sort of riskier jokes work is that it is still done with that same kind of breathless energy and you just have time to think wait a minute did they say then but no it's too late the whole thing's moved on the bit that was really striking to me was not a bit with the Beatles but a bit with Wilfred Bramble when he's been arrested and he's talking about how you know these uh, English pigs are persecuting the Irish again and it's like Jesus uh, this is I talked about really like and um yeah my god wow like um but as you say it just moves on so quickly and it's so silly and jump jumping about with it all the time that you can't you can't really zero in on anything really Mm. um I mean it just uh, yeah it does have that anarchic goonie style feeling to it really doesn't it yeah yeah I mean the other one that is slightly risque is the bit on the train early on where John sticks a bottle of Coca-Cola up his nose and pretends to snort it. I mean, what does it mean? Who can say? I thought I was the only one who saw that. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a show. You don't even, you barely see it in the shot, but that, yeah. that is, it, it's, all, it's a lot of credit to the, the writer and director, I think, that they, mm. um, they don't have a really stuffy, like, bad movie frankly <laughs> they they managed to make it feel innocent without making it feel sanitized i guess is what i've been 
that's maybe the phrasing I've been reaching for. But yeah, uh, it was cut on its initial cinema release. The BBFC had to intervene to save the British public from hearing the phrase get knotted. I did read that as well. I think that's the one cut, wasn't it? <laughs> I mean, it won't be the first time the, the British establishment have made some terrible um, censorship decisions over the Beatles. Um, no. Particular radio as well and TV. But anyway, that's a whole, you could get going to a whole show about that. Um, you probably could, but we, I think we should have a, a diversion about that because these songs are obviously canonical now when no one ever thinks of them as being anything other than sacred texts of Britishness, but they have been subject to some very, very weird bands. I mean, some of them I, I get. I, I still strongly disagree with them, but, you know, um, you know, later era, like um, A Day in the Life was banned because of the phrase, I, I love to turn you on. Mm. Um, it's all kind of later era Beatles songs that were banned. Um, I think, um, I mean, I, th- I think the only thing that comes across in the early Beatles songs, a lot of them are very focused on relationships and being with girls. I mean, it, arguably they, in the modern context, they're, this idea of um, just not being faithful and jumping around and maybe not giving women the respect they deserve probably doesn't stand up as well today than the later songs, which are, you know, are absolutely fine. And of course, yeah. um, I think the BBC, the BBC in particular made a lot of um, censorship decisions like on the radio stations, TV stations, and even, um, and even the, they have very strict requirements all, about all sorts of things, didn't they? About like wh- when they were allowed to do live and mimed performances. Yeah, because that was why uh, Top of the Pops traditionally did mimed performances, because there was some bizarre musicians' union rule that a musician working at the BBC had to be given a certain amount of time to actually play. So, no, it wasn't the musicians. I tell a lie. It was the producers. The producers had to be given some work to do. So if you had a hit single and you go on to Top of the Pops, you had to go in with this BBC producer and re-record your hit single in like an afternoon. A completely insane way of doing things. That is insane. Um, but yeah, but you know, at least, my God, at least there's only one small cut, I guess. Yeah, just, yeah. It could have been worse. <laughs> Didn't they uh, ban I Am The Walrus because it has the word knickers in it? Oh, my God, yeah. 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 I mean, uh, normally when the song's banned on the radio, now it's because they've, uh, you know, there's been some real-life tragedy and it would be insensitive to play it at this time. So they must have thought they were pretty sorted when they did I Am The Walrus. It's not like you're going to release that and Brian Epstein's going to run and go, oh, lads, there's been a terrible thing with a Semolina Pilchard climbing up the Eiffel Tower this weekend. But no, it, it still got hit for a, for an underwear reference. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean... It just shows like how out of step, like um, you know that the the hierarchy were really. <laughs> I sometimes uh, like to to watch things like this and think, can I put myself in the shoes of someone who was like forty, fifty back then? Can I understand why this stuff was terrifying? And I think there were bits of a hard day's night where Harrison and Lennon, in particular, come across as really 
kind of menacing in that sort of Harple Marx way where it's funny and you enjoy watching it, but this is some seriously antisocial behaviour we're laughing at here. Yeah, to be fair, like it, even on the train, I thought, oh, like it's a little rude to play your music when there's a little. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I wouldn't say go to the Beatles, but um, well, just like yeah, I think a good example of that is when um that old, older gentleman's there, like who fought for them in the war, um, and they don't even say anything; they just stare at him, like you just face him in the seat yeah. and just <laughs> uncomfortably. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's quite ominous. Antisocial behaviour. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, hilarious. Um, it, it just cuts to their faces, just like intently staring at him. It, it, I think Paul Paul even says good like hello to him, like politely. But it's just you can kind of see why it's just not respecting the norms and you know, the conventions and the hierarchies of the society they were in. Mm. Um, and, and to be, and, and alongside that, it, it probably just seemed like, um, you know, they were a boy band in a sense. Mm. Like when they, maybe they were viewed as a flash in the pan or just like some noisy music for the youngsters. Like, I mean, yeah. maybe deserved their respect in the first place anyway. Well, there is, there are some fabulous reviews from the time have uh, it, it did get very good reviews mostly famously uh, Andrew Savis the extremely powerful critic of uh, the village voice said it was the citizen cane of jukebox musicals but there is this fantastic review from the New Yorker I think we both like the New Yorker but it's a bit frosty right <laughs> right <laughs> it, it's great if you want to know exactly about everything about changes to the state legislature in Iowa. It's great, but... Um, the thing not... you have to you, I know all about the farming politics of Iowa in XL. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. But yeah, it is a bit fussy, yes. Uh, so at the time their critic Brendan Gill wrote, though I don't pretend to understand what makes these four rather odd-looking boys so fascinating to so many scores of millions of people, I admit I feel a certain mindless joy stealing over me as they caper about uttering sounds. I mean, you have to respect that, I think, as an opinion. Um, yeah. You know, if you don't um, connect with it, you can you understand it for what it is. Yeah, yeah. Level. It, it's less snooty than David Denby giving a terrible review to the new Coen Brothers film, which is what they publish now. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that is the founding text of the pop movie, A Hard Day's Night. Do we have any final thoughts before we close up for the week? I guess um, what, also, what was also credit to the movie... The last thing I'd, pro I'd probably say is, um, as well as um, that innocence, that positivity, that excitement, um, it is it's quite artistic in a way. Um, I think like when when um, it, the song "If I Fell," um, mm. the way that's filmed is fantastic, um, and you really do get sucked into the moment with it. Um, yeah. they, they never lose sight of um, respecting the music. I think. Um, yeah, it's it's quite weird too because when you listen to Hard Day's Night as an album, it 
feels really raucous and energetic, as we've said. And partly because, I guess, in the film, some of the heavier songs like You Can't Do That aren't played, but also because of the sheer relentlessness of the film. When those musical numbers start, it feels like this beautiful oasis of, you know, calm and you, you know that you can sit back for two and a half minutes without anything really chaotic happening. I mean, it has my favourite Beatles ballad in it as well, which is And I Love Her. Oh, it's gorgeous song isn't it so great yeah um and just like and just the way they um they film the cameras filming them like mm. which is probably quite a common thing now but it's just um it feels quite revolutionary revolutionary is very strong but it just feels um like different and very fresh and um yeah looking looking at things acknowledging the fame and the the chaos and the situation it just um it just looks. It just works really well, I think. So that um, it's a real credit to the film. It's a, it's a lot of fun to watch, but it's also um, portrays the songs in a really good way as well. I mean, as, when we listen to the album, we can think of the songs being performed in that movie. I think. Yeah, yeah, and I think. The album, part of what makes the album great is that it is the first Beatles album where you listen back to it now and you hear genres being born. I mean, there's a great story about Roger McGuinn from The Birds seeing this movie and hearing George Harrison's 12-string solo on Hard Day's Night, the track, and just mm. thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, that all music should be like that. <laughs> um, you can see it, like, how much it inspired like uh, you know it's a very good choice for an episode i think because the kind of influence it'll it's, it's had on well music mu- music and movies like, yeah across in other episodes um but yeah it's really good <laughs> yeah <laughs> it will uh, i'm gonna make a bold prediction here it will stand the test of time wow yes that that it, you're a bit out there in saying that um <laughs> But yeah, it's um, it's great. Um, uh, and as you started off by saying, I mean, the fact my five-year-old was excited by it, this like this old black and white movie, like, is a good sign, I think. Like, Completely. It feels yeah. fresh. It, it it really adds to the test of time, I think. You have shamefully ducked the question of who your favourite Beatle is, by the way. It's a bit. It's a bit shaming. Um. <laughs> I, it was half knowingly that I, I ducked that question. I think uh, <laughs> as a kid, like, so this is a kid who, um, as a birthday treat, got took taken to Liverpool to the Beatles Museum and could get a badge of his favourite Beatle. Like obsessed, like with the Beatles, like made collages of of like the photos and um, like song lyrics, things like that. Ringo was my favourite. Well, that's lovely because Ringo is no pun intended. Ringo is an absolute star in this. He is really great. But the, I know it's a common quote, but he's not even the best drummer in the beat. No, that's harsh. I think he's actually a really good drummer. <laughs> today, he's an excellent drummer. But but yeah, it, it, it's like not necessarily the person you latch on to if you're looking at the the impact. Um, he's, he's even like presented in the film like quite. Um, like they make fun of him like in the film <laughs> even but um, ah but he gets more fan mail than the others right yeah that is a nice twist nice twisty joke isn't it um, yeah. i think as well he narrated thomas the tank engine he did yes 
probably had an influence on him being my favorite Beatle at the time. Yeah. So it my favorite Beatles Ringo. I mean, they're all fantastic, but yeah. For me, um, I don't remember if I had a favorite Beatle as a kid. I'm not sure about that, but uh, as an adult, my favorite Beatle is George Harrison, who I love so much. He reminds me so much in in his looks and in the fact that my dad had all his records. He reminds me a lot of my dad. And mm. I think his guitar sound is extraordinary, unparalleled. There's never been anyone who had a better signature guitar sound than George Harrison. Uh, another underrated element of the Beatles, for sure. Yeah. Like, um, you just think of all, not just the melody lines, but you say the sound of it. Yeah. Uh, incredible. He's such, a, such an integral part of the Beatles. Yeah, I completely agree. I think he's, I absolutely love that man. So, yeah, uh, that's the first episode. That went well, I thought. That was great. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. So, just to remind the listeners, Joe, where can people find you ordinarily? So, uh, we're both part of The Geek Show. Um, so, I'm part of The Geek Show's animation-focused podcast, The Dreaming Machine. Um, so, we do, we do a lot of fun stuff, um, like lots of tips for cartoons to get into, uh, lots of reviews of classic as well. So definitely check us out, The Dreaming Machine, which is part of The Geek Show. And I myself am a film critic for the, the Geek Show website. I do written reviews for there. I write for Horrified Magazine. And of course, I do Pop Screen, where we'll be back next week with another band and another movie. But until then, I've been Graham. I've been Joe. And we'll see you next week. 